Welcome to episode 10 of Mike's Mental Models. Today, the final episode, and much like episode 9, this will be the last episode I release in this series of podcasts. I said it in episode 9, but I'll say it again. The idea of searching for mental models wasn't a strength of mine. It wasn't something that I did well. There were too many other people on the internet that were explaining mental models in a really good way. My strength was in a different area. It was synthesizing and taking notes and reporting on things that I found. And so that's what the Mike's Notes podcast series is going to be. That's at a different URL with a different RSS, so you need to search for that in your favorite podcast player. If you just search for Mike's Notes, you usually don't need the apostrophe for it to come up. It's a little black and white picture, and you should be able to find it. This final episode is a cross-track from that series. These are notes that I took on Sebastian Younger's podcast with Tim Ferriss. It's a really great interview, and I'm really proud of the way this set of notes came out. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you over at the other podcast series, Mike's Notes. Welcome to another episode of Mike's Notes. Today, six lessons from Sebastian Younger. Younger joined Ferris in an episode that was published in May 2016, and the two talked about a host of things. I was not familiar with Sebastian's work prior to his interview with Tim Ferris, but I found him an absolutely great person to interview and to talk to about a lot of different things. And what I really liked about this interview was that it touched on things that weren't familiar to me what it means to be a war correspondent, what his educational experiences were like, how things aren't always as glamorous as they seem. Sebastian, uh, he cut trees to make ends meet for a while, where he was the guy that climbed up with a saw and took the top off of a tree, and he says a chainsaw ended up cutting part of his leg. He talked about education and athletics and a bunch of different things. Uh, in today's episode of my notes, we're just going to touch on Six things that he specifically talked with Ferris about. One, how adversity can be helpful. Two, how to solve for writer's block. Three, how to create your own mentors. Four, spectrum thinking and leadership. Five, weaknesses and strengths and strengths and weaknesses. And six, what a real education feels like. Those are the six things that I learned from Sebastian Younger. Let's dive deeper and see what they are. One. Sebastian's entire interview with Ferris touches on the value of adversity, whether it's personal adversity or group adversity or things like that. And one specific example that he tells Ferris was after a earthquake and he's interviewing this guy and what this guy said was the earthquake gave us what the law promises but does not in fact deliver, which is the equality of all men. Now, it's clear that not having an earthquake would have been better in the end. But it's also clear that good things can come from adversity. There can be things that happen to a person or to a group of people 
that harden them, that bring them together. And a lot of their interview touches on this, specifically about men in the military and the sort of bond that forms between people that go through those circumstances. Beyond that, adversity can help in other areas because it forces us to learn how to do things. It forces us how to adapt and overcome and build skills we wouldn't otherwise have built. One example of this is Charles Lindbergh, who learned to fly some of the worst airplanes in the world before he was able to fly across the Atlantic. His story is told, at least in part, in Bill Bryson's book, One Summer, and this is what Bryson has to say about Lindbergh's preparation for his transatlantic flight. Quote, In no important area of technology had America ever fallen further behind the rest of the world than it did with aviation in the 1920s. And this is especially amazing considering the work the Wright brothers did barely 10 years before Lindbergh went ahead and flew across the Atlantic. A little later on in the same section, Bryson writes, quote, Without airlines to employ them, American aviators had to turn a hand to whatever work they could find. Dusting crops, giving rides at county fairs, thrilling spectators with stunts of acrobatics, dragging advertising banners across the skies, taking aerial photographs, and above all, carrying mail, the one area in which America was preeminent. Of all the aerial employments, delivering mail was the most economically secure, but also the most dangerous. 31 of the first 40 air mail pilots were killed in crashes and accidents remained common throughout the 1920s. Air mail pilots flew in all weather and often at night, but with almost no support in the way of navigational aids. In March 1927, an article in Scientific American under the heading Invisible Beams Guide Birdmen in Flights Between European Cities noted admiringly how pilots in Europe could fix their locations instantly via radio beacons. Lost American pilots, by contrast, had to search for a town and hope that someone had written its name on the roof of a building. In the absence of that, and it was generally absent, pilots had to swoop low to try to read the signs on the local railroad station, often a risky maneuver. For weather reports, they mostly called ahead to railroad agents along the route and asked them to put their head out the door and tell them what they saw. Bryson paints the bleak picture, the savage, the rudimentary picture of American air flight. It wasn't good, but in some ways, this helped Lindbergh. In the same section, Bryson goes on, quote, Barnstorming gave Lindbergh a great deal of practical experience. He made over 700 flights in two years, but no technical training. He took a job as an airmail pilot on the St. Louis-Chicago route, where he acquired the sort of resourcefulness that comes with flying cheap and temperamental planes through every possible type of adversity. Thanks to his varied apprenticeship, Lindbergh, in the spring of 1927, was a more experienced and proficient flyer and a vastly more gifted one than his competitors realized. As events would show, you couldn't be a better pilot and still be just 25. So Lindbergh's adversity was that he didn't have the best resources. He didn't have much of any resources. Part of the reason that Lindbergh was even able to get a flight, to get a plane to fly, was that he had financial backers in St. Louis. 
It's named the Spirit of St. Louis because those backers were hoping to generate tourism and interest in the city, and they thought if their name was on the plane that flew across the Atlantic, it would bring that. So Lindbergh was especially well-suited to fly across the Atlantic because of his adversity, because of the lack of resources. So in the same way that Sebastian says this natural disaster brought people together, Lindbergh's adversity was that he didn't have a lot of resources, so he had to scrape by with whatever he could. Our third example here is J.K. Rowling, and this clip that you're going to hear is from a 2008 speech she gave to Harvard University where she talked about failure and how failure can in some ways be helpful. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena where I believed I truly belonged. So here we have three examples. Younger talks about what happens with a natural disaster. Bryson writes about Lindbergh's adversity trying to get a plane over the Atlantic. And Rowling talks about the adversity she faced when she was trying to be a writer. And each of these people noted that because things weren't easy, the person who was trying to do something, the person who wanted the thing, was more able to do it because there had been a natural disaster that brought people together. Because Lindbergh flew crappy planes, he was used to all sorts of disasters. Because Rowling didn't succeed in her writing, she cleared out everything of her life that wasn't involved in writing and then really doubled down on that. So even though we can face setbacks, even though we have obstacles in our life, even though things are bad, sometimes good things can come out of those. The second thing that I found interesting about Younger's talk with Ferris was how he approached writer's block. And he says he's not really blocked, but it's something else. Here's Younger. I feel that I'm blocked in my writing. Usually with that blocked meaning I, I just can't write the next section. I keep rewriting it. It doesn't work and it's stuck. It... It's not that I'm blocked. It's that I don't have that I don't have enough research to write with power and knowledge about that topic. It always means it's not that I can't find the right words. It's that I don't have the ammunition. What he's saying here is very familiar to the advice Anne Lamott gives in the book Bird by Bird. There she writes, quote, "The word block suggests you are constipated or stuck when the truth is that you're empty." In his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Ben Horowitz touches on this idea as well. In his situation, it wasn't a book that needed writing, but it was his business that was being run, and they had trouble with the services they were providing clients. And Horowitz recalls this advice he got from Bill Turpin, quote, Ben, those silver bullets that you and Mike are looking for are fine and good, but our web server is five times slower. There is no silver bullet that's going to fix that. Nope, we are going to have to use a lot of lead bullets, end quote. Later on in the same section, Horowitz writes about the solution, quote, 
After nine months of hard work on an extremely rugged product cycle, we regained our product lead and eventually built a company that was worth $1.6 billion. Without the lead bullets, I suspect we would have ended at about one-tenth that value, end quote. So what Sebastian and Ben and Anne are saying here is that sometimes we need to fill in a solution to a problem. We need to get another tool or another skill or another segment of data. And it's not one. It's not a simple thing that's going to unlock it. In his interview, Younger tells Ferris that he doesn't ever want to rely on fancy prose or language to be a silver bullet solution for a book that he's writing or a project that he's working on. He wants to get all of the details, all of the facts. Three. Ferris and Younger talk about John McPhee, an author that Ferris says he was able to take a class from, and this is Younger's response to that. Well, let me just say, McPhee... Um... I mean, you're very lucky to have taken the class oh, with him. So I mean, he, lucky. He, so was, lucky. he was a mentor that I didn't personally know for me. Through his works, he was. He was a mentor that I didn't personally know. This is a, this is a great way to express the idea that you can have any mentor you want. Ferris and some other people that I regularly listen to talk about how people are always asking them for mentorships or a way to connect or I'll work for free all I need is an hour of your time each week. And it's pretty clear that people who are succeeding in that way get a lot of requests from that. And that's not necessarily what you or I or anybody needs to do. Rather, we have mentors available to us in the same way that McPhee was a mentor to Younger. My favorite lines on this come from the Stoic philosopher Seneca, where he writes to Paulinus, and this section is from uh, the book on the shortness of life. Life is long if you know how to use it. And Seneca writes to uh, this young man who wrote to him, quote, By the toil of others we are led into the presence of things which have been brought from darkness into light. We are excluded from no age, but we have access to them all. And if we are prepared in loftiness of mind to pass beyond the narrow confines of human weakness, there is a long period of time through which we can roam. We can argue with Socrates express doubt with Carnitas, cultivate retirement with Epicurus, overcome human nature with the Stoics, and exceed its limits with the Cynics. Since nature allows us to enter into a partnership with every age, why not turn from this brief and transient spell of time and give ourselves wholeheartedly to the past, which is limitless and eternal and can be shared with better men than we? What Seneca is writing here is that you can find so much in the books and writings of the people who have come before us, which are absolutely brilliant. It would take you years to go through the work of famous economists and philosophers and men of science and great biographies. Later, Seneca continues on the same topic. Quote, you should rather suppose that those are involved in worthwhile duties who wish to have daily as their closest friends Zeno, Pythagoras, Democritus, and all the other high priests of liberal studies, and Aristotle, and Theoprastus. None of these will be too busy to see you. None of these will not send his visitor away happier and more devoted to himself. None of these will allow anyone to depart empty-handed. They are at home to all mortals by day and night. 
And so Seneca notes here that you don't even have to go anywhere to find these people. You get their books. You read it online for free. You have access to them. You have access to podcasts like Tim Ferriss. And you have access to some of the most brilliant people who have ever, ever lived. That's a big takeaway because sometimes we think, oh, if we only had this thing or if we only had that thing, when in reality we have access to so much, we just need to start the process of looking. Four. Ferris and Younger also talk about the politics of the current U.S. system, and it doesn't get into the nitty-ditty details, but Younger brings up this point about how to choose a leader and how do you get the right person. You know, the wisdom and the gentleness of a peacetime leader, the empathy of a peacetime leader, and the um, capacity for violence and effectiveness and decisiveness in a wartime leader, you're asking an almost you're asking someone to be almost schizophrenic if they can do both of those well. And here we have the idea of spectrum thinking, in that you want your leader to exist somewhere on the spectrum from peacetime to wartime and to be able to successfully navigate where they are on that spectrum. And as Sebastian points out, this is really hard to do, and he would know. He's been around for a long enough time, and he's seen enough things that he understands the challenges of being a peacetime leader and being a wartime leader. The way that I approach spectrums like this is to remember something that Teddy Roosevelt once wrote. Roosevelt, in a letter to his sister, said that title mattered, quote, only in so far as it widened the chance of achievement, end quote. So what Roosevelt wants us to do here is to wear our title, wear our name, wear our identifier only insofar as it helps us achieve the thing that we want done. And I think this applies politically as well. If you identify as a conservative or a liberal or a peacetime or a wartime uh, mindset or framework or philosophy, then why do you do that? To what ends does that lead you to? What achievement do you want? Roosevelt was almost neglectful of some of his duties that he didn't think he needed to achieve, but that were just necessarily part of the title. Another nice example of the spectrum is something that Greg Ipp introduces in his book, Foolproof. And Ipp talks about ecologists and engineers. And he writes that ecologists are people who tend to normally see things in more complex situations, that no matter how much you plan for something, uh, the thing that you're planning for will probably eventually happen. A common example from the book is flooding, where if you're an ecologist, you understand that a river needs a certain floodplain, and you will never be able to build walls high enough or to sandbag something or to trench something out to make it so it'll never flood. The other end of the spectrum that Ip writes about are engineers, and engineers are people who tend to believe you can manufacture certain conditions that you can accommodate for. So an engineer would look at a river and they would say, well, if you dig it this deep and you widen it and you divert it and you do all these things, eventually you'll have a solution that is stable. And it does a really nice job of pointing out that there's benefits and drawbacks of each of these things. And you, what you want to do is operate somewhere on that spectrum that helps you solve the problem that's at hand. And this can be really hard sometimes, as Younger pointed out with war and peacetime. And it can also be hard if you're an ecologist 
or an engineer because those solutions tend to be divergent. That is, one solution doesn't often have a lot of overlap with the other solution. What's important, though, is for us to remember that things are spectrums, to not fall for the black-white fallacy, and to remember that there's a wide range of options that can happen in the middle. Five. Younger also addresses strengths and weaknesses and weaknesses and strengths. Here he's talking about the society that we live in. The, the, the very safety of this society, the very thing that makes us lucky, also creates a danger. And here we see the idea that if you are strong in one area, you'll be weak in another area, and vice versa. Napoleon's aggressive mindset was great for campaigns, but he failed at defensive battle after defensive battle. Short sellers are strong when the stock market is weak and weak when the stock market is strong. An example of this is in Niall Ferguson's book, Civilization, where he writes about the challenges or the different conditions in America and how things may have played out differently. Here's what Ferguson wrote. Quote, the Spaniards appeared to be laying the foundation for an entirely new and spectacular civilization to be run from a few splendid cities by a tiny, wealthy Spanish-born elite. And those cities grew rapidly. Mexico City had 100,000 inhabitants in 1692, at a time when Boston had barely 6,000. Twenty-five Spanish-American universities were founded, like the one at Santo Domingo, which predates Harvard by nearly a century. The sciences of cartography and metallurgy flourished. The Spaniards learned to enjoy at least some of the staples of Mesoamerican cuisine, chilies, peanuts, potatoes, and turkey, all later adopted by North Americans. Hundreds of lavishly adorned churches were built in some of the most imposing cathedrals in the world, like the magnificent one at Cuzco, designed by the architect Francisco Becerra, was completed in 1669 by the Flemish Jesuit Juan Batista Ergadino. Franciscans as well as Jesuits flocked to South America in their thousands to convert what remained of the indigenous population. But while the church was influential, ultimate power resided with the Spanish crown. And crucially, the crown owned all the land. The story of property ownership in North America would be altogether different. How so, you ask? Ferguson continues on the next page. The Spaniards had literally found mountains of silver in Mexico and Peru. All there seemed to be on the shores of Carolina was a boneyard of bleached tree trunks. This was no El Dorado. Instead, settlers in North America had to plant corn to eat and tobacco to trade. For many years, Britain's American colonies remained a patchwork of farms and villages, with a few towns and virtually no true cities. And here the natives, though less numerous, were not so easily subjugated. Even in 1670, you could still have been forgiven for thinking that Geronimo de Alagua's America was the future, while Millicent Howe's was destined to remain an obscure Ruritania, and those names are from the different settlers of the different areas, uh, South America and uh, North America. So what we have here is we have these two different situations, one where South America's strength is natural resources and North America's weakness is in natural resources, and natural resources that are easy to get to. Ferguson writes that silver was flowing like a river, and 
economists call this the resource curse. They see time and time again that when one resource is really easy to control, that power is often consolidated within a few people. So we see this in South America where the power is ruled, the power is held by this wealthy Spanish-born elite. And so power doesn't get distributed, resources don't get distributed, land ownership doesn't get distributed in South America in the same way it does in North America. And this certainly isn't the only instance of the different outcomes between North and South America, but it's a major point in Ferguson's book, Civilization. And we can bring this back to J.K. Rowling. We can see that your weaknesses can turn into strengths. So because Rowling's weakness was too many things going on, she said she had to call down her responsibilities and the things that she was doing in life. So she was able to write the Harry Potter series. In the same way we see North America, they, their weakness was that they didn't have easy natural resources. So they had to develop systems and structure that allowed them to do something, to do anything. And this isn't true just for grand things like world empires or for military battles, but this also exists in business. Clayton Christensen has a theory of disruption which notes that oftentimes products will be disrupted when a cheaper competitor comes in and the established product yields ground to them. They let their new competitor with the cheaper product take the lowest profitable section of the market. So this happened with motorbikes, for example, where Christensen writes that when Honda came on the scene and they had their Super Cub motorbike, they were unopposed by a company like Harley because Harley was happy to let them have this small section of the market. But eventually they moved upstream, they created more valuable products, and they ate away and they disrupted at Harley's hold on the market. And about this theory, Christensen writes, quote, an organization's capabilities become its disabilities when disruption is afoot. A process that defines a capability executing a certain task concurrently defines disabilities in executing other tasks, end quote. So Christensen writes here that as a company gets really, really good at serving their highest end clients, at serving their most profitable clients, they create a weakness in not serving their least profitable clients. And that's where a competitor can sneak in, get a foothold, and disrupt the company. So we see in these examples, from younger as society has changed to be more docile, that we do lose something. Napoleon's mindset restricted what he was able to do as a battlefield commander. We saw it in civilizations. We saw it in business. And this idea that strengths are your weaknesses and your weaknesses are strengths are also apparent uh, on the athletic field and in sports. When a team is really good at one thing, they're often not very good at the other thing. There's only so many things you can work on, so many things you can do. And you have to know that in each weakness, there's a strength. And in each strength, there's a weakness. Six. My favorite part of this podcast interview was when Younger talks about how he really got interested in learning and when his eyes opened to what education can really be. 
Here he tells Ferris about how that happened. And I wrote a thesis about Navajo long-distance running. That was the name of the thesis. And uh, apparently thesis titles are supposed to have a colon in them, and I didn't know that. I just called it Navajo long-distance running. And uh, and I... I I just came alive academically doing that. I mean, I was a pretty indifferent student. I was much more of an athlete than a student. And um, I just came alive. And the idea that you could go out into the world and gather information, gather research, interview people, and bring it back, and then turn it into words that people will read and be moved by, informed by and moved by and maybe changed by, that to me was just such an extraordinary idea. As Younger talked about this, it reminded me of the experience the Wright brothers had when they were growing up. Their father was a bishop, and rather than confine them to only reading the Bible and other religious texts, he had a huge bookshelf full of things, and full of things that weren't necessarily just religious. It was a bookshelf that had things that were counter to his religion, and as his boys and his daughter read more and more from that shelf, they learned more, and ultimately they stopped going to church. And in David McCullough's book, The Wright Brothers, he gives the impression that the bishop was okay with that because they came to that conclusion because they were reading from it. This is one section that McCullough writes about the Wright Brother household. Quote, The Wright family book collection, however, was neither modest nor commonplace. Bishop Wright a lifelong lover of books, heartily championed the limitless value of reading. Between formal education at school and informal education at home, it would seem he put more value on the latter. He was never overly concerned about his children's attendance at school. If one or the other of them chose to miss a day or two for some project or interest he thought worthy, it was all right, and certainly he ranked reading as worthy." End quote. So the Wright brothers grew up in this environment where it was okay to pursue knowledge. They were allowed to find things that they were really interested in. And that's ultimately how they invented air flight, how they were the first people to fly at Kitty Hawk. And what's really valuable to note from Younger to the Wright brothers is the excitement they have for learning. It's not the writing of things or the reading of things, but just this internal desire, this love of learning, that once they found something that they wanted to do, once they found a medium for learning, that they were involved in that. The most famous piece of writing from the Wright brothers is a letter that Wilbur Wright wrote to the Smithsonian in 1899, and here is how he concludes that letter. Quote, I am about to begin a systematic study of the subject in preparation for practical work to which I expect to devote what time I can spare from my regular business. I wish to obtain such papers as the Smithsonian Institution has published on the subject, and if possible, a list of other works in print in the English language. I am an enthusiast, but not a crank in the sense that I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine. I wish to avail myself of all that is already known, and then, if possible, add my might to help on the future workers who will attain final success. I do not know the terms on which you send out your publications, but if you will inform me of the cost, I will remit the price. End quote. And you can just hear in that letter that he wants everything they've got. He wants to know everything the Smithsonian has about flight so that he can dive more deeply into it. He has that same 
excitement for learning more that Younger had after he wrote his thesis about the Navajo runners. In an interview with the long-form podcast, author Elizabeth Gilbert talks about her experiences learning more. She says that she thought about going to graduate school and getting her MFA, but she wasn't entirely sure what that would entail. She didn't know if that was the best place for her. She had heard the advice to write what you know, but she didn't really know anything. Here's what she says about that. I feel like I'm constantly being told to write what I know, but I don't know anything yet. I haven't been anywhere yet. I haven't done anything yet. So Gilbert set off and she went places and she did things. She said that she worked as a waitress and at a bar and she would always keep a notebook in her back pocket to write down some of the things that she heard and some of the things she saw. She would save up her money and then she would go out west and she would work on this cattle drive for months at a time. And she ended up writing some stories that got accepted on spec. And that really started her writing career. It proved to her that she could do it. It gave her that validation that she could be a writer. She just had to get out there and she had to use that intrinsic drive for knowledge. She had to find something she really wanted to know more about. And then she could go ahead and start to write about it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. We talked about six things from the Sebastian Younger podcast with Tim Ferriss. One, remember that adversity can help, whether it's an individual or groups. Two, writer's block isn't a block, but it's more like a gap. You need to fill that gap in with things and fill it in with the facts, not fancy language. Three, the dead are never too busy to see you. Find a great book and learn from it. Four, so many things in life are a spectrum, whether it's the kind of leadership or the mindset you adopt. But remember, the thing that you are looking for is the ends. Five, Weaknesses are in strengths and strengths are in weaknesses, whether it's on the battlefield or in the boardroom or for civilizations on the whole. Six, education, good education feels really good. Dive into something like Younger did or the Wright Brothers or what Elizabeth Gilbert did. Thanks for listening to episode 16 of Mike's Notes. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you.